listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. I want to begin today by just, first of all, just expressing my gratitude. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says that we should give thanks in all circumstances, in all. And I think our family's probably learned how to do that a little bit better over the last two weeks. It was two weeks ago today that my father-in-law, Marion Conover, passed away. And since that time, I just want you to know as a church family that even though we've been grieving, grief is one of those things you don't, you don't get over. You don't get over it, you just, you just get through it. And uh, though there's been grieving, at the same time, there's just been incredible gratitude. Uh, gratitude to God for his presence, gratitude to God for his strength, gratitude for his, his uh, ongoing care for us. And that care has even been expressed through our faith family and through life groups and through Marion's, you know, his breakfast group and, and through Sunday school growth classes and just, just through all the ways that family, friends, and the faith family have poured into us, I really do believe that over the last two weeks, that kind of comfort and care and love for our family has helped us know even better what it means to give thanks in all circumstances, through the good and the hard. And I just want to thank you for that. We're, we're grateful to God for that. And we do that knowing that we come into a week Thanksgiving week, a Thanksgiving day, a holiday where we are just to a higher level prioritizing and remembering the importance of gratitude. And that this is something God wants to see in each and every one of us. That this is something that in the good and the hard, we want to express to the Lord. And so I just want to begin today just with a prayer of, of thanksgiving that we can bring to God. That this could be our prayer this week. That God, as we enter it this week of thanksgiving, let us have our minds set on a commitment to greater gratitude in our hearts and in our lives and everything that we do. So I just want us to kind of set our hearts and minds right now through prayer and that we can be filled with thanksgiving this week. So let's just pray together. Let's bring this to the Lord to set off our week right. And so, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your amazing power. God, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. God, we thank you for your goodness and for your blessings over us. And that God, that you are able to bring hope to us even through the most toughest of times. That God, you can strengthen us for your purposes. That Lord, your great love and care for us is felt. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are with us and that you never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we thank you that you forgive us when we don't thank you enough. Lord, we thank you for who you are, for all that you do, for all that you've given. Help us to set our eyes and hearts on you today, God, that you would renew our spirits. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with peace and with joy. God, we pray that you would grow us to learn to give thanks in everything because we don't always get this right. And Lord, sometimes we are ungrateful, even when we are unaware. 
And so I just want to pray that you would grow in us a spirit of gratitude for who you are and what you're doing. And Lord, to you, we give thanks. You alone are worthy of everything we give you today. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was Gordon MacDonald who observed one day when he was at the beach with his family and he was watching the kids play out on the edge of the water. He said there was an eight-year-old boy who was a little bigger than the five-year-olds that were kind of around him playing there on the beach. And so Gordon was just observing their play. And what he noticed was this eight-year-old was a little rough. Uh, He he was bigger than the five-year-olds. He didn't understand his own strength or his size. And he says there were some collisions in the water. There were some things going on that were concerning. And what he observed is that the parents of the five-year-olds were getting a little restless there on the beach, watching this eight-year-old interact with their own kids. And and that some of these kids were starting to get hurt, and, and he was no, it was getting a little rough. And he noticed they were all glancing at the father of, of the eight-year-old. Just He knew what they were thinking. Are you going to do something? Like, we're all noticing this. We're observing it. We're watching this. Are you going to do something? Are, are you going to act? Can't you see what's happening? Can't you see someone's going to get hurt? And their frustration was building. And when it got to about the point where it was intolerable, how the eight-year-old was interacting with the five-year-olds, right at that moment, all of a sudden, the booming voice of the father was heard, and he just screamed as loud as he could, Robert, get out of this water this instant. Blast it, Robert. I'm sick and tired of the way you're acting. Look at what you're doing down there. Can't you keep your hands off these younger children? His son immediately was looking this way and that, and all the kids' eyes were on Robert, and he started walking up the beach, and he was whimpering, but daddy, and as soon as he said, but daddy, his dad went off. Don't talk back to me. That father responded more loudly than before. Don't you argue with me. I saw what you were doing. I'm disgusted with you. You sit down on that sand here for the next half hour and see if it puts some sense in your head. The boy, humiliated, slumped into the hot sand, looked down, not about to make eye contact with the whole beach that was looking at him. He began to just doodle with his finger in the sand. The father turned, picked up his beer, resumed his conversation with those around him as if nothing had happened. And Gordon said, but something did happen. Something Horrible happened. This human being was crushed. The key words, I saw what you were doing. Gordon said, I sat there and wondered to myself, how long did you see that? How many opportunities did you have to gently correct and redirect and help train? But instead waited until there was this explosive outburst. Is, is that his idea of patience, that you just don't do anything? For a long time until you just explode in crisis mode. Gordon McDonald looking at this just said instead of having fun and continuing, everyone, including the people around the father, were humiliated, had feelings that were vengeful. The father's immaturity matched the immaturity of his son, likely crushing his spirit and provoking him to greater anger. Have you ever seen a situation like this yourself before? Have you ever been on the receiving end of this before? Was that you this morning on your, before you left for church? You know, did that, was that you today? I, 
Colossians chapter 3 addresses this. It's that section of Scripture where Paul is saying, when you have your mind set on things above, when you're the kind of person who's been made alive by Jesus, it affects your relationships. It affects how you interact with other people. Like when Jesus has changed you, it's going to reveal itself and how you behave and how you act with others. And this very scenario I'm painting is really what Paul is talking about in Colossians 3. If you want to open your Bible or device, we're just going to look at two verses there today. Two verses. Last week, we looked at two verses that address marriage. And it was what marriages look like from people who have their minds set on heaven. And so those who were not married to the singles out there, they... They were applying this in the context of their relationships and looking at the principles and truths of this and, and how that could interact, and, but also how they could encourage others in the faith. Today, it's going to be the non-parents that get to hear us talk a lot about parenting for a moment. But here's what we find in the faith family. We care about it all. We care about the household of faith. And these things matter. These are important for us. And so we're just going to look at two verses that talk about parent child relationships. Just two verses. It's in Colossians 3, verse 20 through 21. It begins like this. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And all God's people say, we love that verse. We love that one. Kids, obey your parents in everything. Let's memorize that. And then there's verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. And all God's people say, no, it's the same thing. Amen. Like, we like it when it addresses other people. So I'm going to spend most of my time, though the scripture makes it clear, children, obey your parents. This is what pleases the Lord. Obey them in everything. This matters to God. How you obey your parents affects your relationship with God. This matters. But in this audience right here today, I'm going to focus more on verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. The ESV says, Fathers, do not provoke your children. The NASB, do not exasperate your children. Exasperate means to intensely irritate, to frustrate to the point of unwise action. It's the negative part of this command first. Do not do this, fathers. Well, it sounds like just the father. So that means mothers have free reign. Mothers, you can do what you want. You know, is that what that means? No. No. Michael DeFazio in his book, More Jesus, says that when Paul is addressing fathers, it's because in, in Paul's world, fathers were the sole unquestioned authority of the family. Whatever they said went, at least in theory. And so he's talking to the fathers in regard to this. So it's not just to fathers. It really is to our parenting of our children. It applies to mothers as well. Verse 20 says, do children obey your parents? But that does not mean as parents we presume on their obedience and provoke them through continual agitation or unreasonable demands and to the point where it embitters them, discourages them, frustrates them so. Instead, he says, discipline your children. That, That word discipline in the Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew word hanak. It means to train. 
Train them. Like the goal of parenting is, is guidance to a particular goal. You're training them to become young adults, responsible adults. Discipline comes from the same root word as disciple. We're discipling our children. We're training our children. That's the goal of our parenting, to disciple your kids of what it means to live life and live it in the Lord. That training can come in many ways, through modeling, instructing, talking, practicing, even correcting. But what is important is the attitude toward correction matters by keeping disciplining in mind, discipling in mind, training in mind. We don't just want to change the behavior. We want to see a heart change as parents. Michael DeFazio says, Paul sees two principles that are at work in faithful parenting. And the first one is this, parent with gentleness. Gentleness. Don't exasperate. Be gentle. Don't be harsh. Be gentle. Paul's world held to this idea known as patria potestas, which essentially meant the father had virtually unlimited power over his children. And so Paul, instead of said, man, leverage that power, come out swinging. Instead, he says, there is great importance in corralling it. He tells these fathers who in their world had virtually unlimited power over their children. He speaks not to the power at their disposal, but the importance of corralling it. We don't hound our kids so much they give up trying or give up trying to please us or they become so discouraged they just want to quit. How you rebuke matters. Rebuke most often should be done in private, not in public. Certainly not like a father does screaming at the whole beach at his son. That's not how rebuke is effective. The rebuke should be at the behavior. It should not be at the child. It's at the behavior, not the child. It often comes best when that child is pulled aside to a quiet experience, a private experience with that parent. A rebuke from a parent is not always appreciated by the child. I mean, Hebrews talks about that, how discipline is not pleasant at the time. Like when you're rebuking, it's not like the child enjoys it. Like, oh, thank you. I really needed to hear that. It's not enjoyable at the time. But it produces something. And not only does it produce, but later the child respects their parents for it, Hebrews says. Rebukes oftentimes are not aimed at building character, though they should be. Oftentimes, they're just designed to halt whatever activity. We want it to stop right here, right now. I find it annoying. I don't like that. I don't want you to act like that. So we just stop it without any regard to actually what we're trying to train them for. Sometimes when it comes to rebukes, we need to ask ourselves, can this wait till a more appropriate time? Is it coming from love? Is it merely a sign of irritability or of vengeance? Will it only focus on the bad behavior? Or is it actually going to speak to produce the good behavior that we want to see? It's important to rebuke. It's important to discipline, but do it with gentleness. So having said that, Paul also in this text is showing this assumption that that it, it is the parents that set the agenda for the kids. Children obey, parents train, disciple, discipline. Parents set the agenda for their kids. You're to be engaged and involved. That, that idea, do not exasperate, provoke your kids. Don't let the pendulum swing to the other side or we're uninvolved or unengaged. 
Children are to obey their parents. The parents are the authority in the home. And their basic responsibility as parents is to tell their kids what to do. To bring them up in the training instruction of the Lord. So don't fall in this trap where you're like, I'm going to let my kids, you know, I'm, I'm going to let them find their own course in life, find their own path. Like as if somehow that's more loving or free. It's like taking them and dropping them in the ocean and saying, okay, learn how to swim. It's not a loving approach at all. It's not how God has designed it for us. A Christ-centered approach to parenting is one in which we are engaged in their lives. We're helping them see the world around them through the love of Jesus. We come in providing leadership and authority and teaching them and training them and discipling them and disciplining them. Mindful that we're not going to push too hard, but we're going to engage, not disengage. And when you think about Paul's words about, about gentleness coupled with leadership in the home, I think some things can be helpful for us as we think about what gentleness looks like. And here's one of them. We can be firm without being harsh. We can be firm without being harsh. Some parents will say, my kids won't do anything unless I get angry. And then they'll do it. Well, if, if kids are only doing something because we're angry, then we got some problems. In fact, oftentimes I think parents can confuse harshness with firmness. Harshness is anger. Firmness is not. Firmness says the boundary is secure and it won't be crossed without consequence. That's firmness. And that can be done without using angry words and screaming and yelling and berating and embarrassing and humiliating our children. In fact, oftentimes the way we be firm is more action, less talk, more action, less yelling. That's how we're firm. Taransky and Miller, in their book, The Christian Parenting Handbook, which is fantastic, by the way, Taransky and Miller in The Christian Parenting Handbook. Uh, we've given this, I know, to some parents during our ch- child dedication that we have here. But two things will help you make the change, they say, <coughs> to using firmness without harshness. They say it's this, dialogue less, show less emotion. Dialogue less, show less emotion. And some people will say, wait, I, I, thought, I thought dialoguing more and showing emotion leads to healthy families. And they're like, yes, it does. And, and you need that. But not in the context when you're disciplining, not when you're giving instruction, not when you're correcting, not, not when you're giving a direction to somebody. It just becomes confusing when you dialogue more and show more emotion when you're giving instruction or in discipline. When you spend too much dog time dialoguing about instruction, then what you're going to find is kids begin to defend their words. And uh, excuse me, you'll find parents who try to defend their words, tell them why they're telling them, persuade their children to obey, logically explain why obedience would be good right here and right now, but it's counterproductive. It teaches kids to resist more. It, it leads to parents getting resorting to anger when the kid's not doing what they say, and finally they've had it and they blow up in that moment. It just complicates things further. So talking, showing emotion, yes, that's very good in a healthy family. But in the context of instruction and, and in discipline, whenever we do that, it just confuses the issue. Clear boundaries are not set. It's the wrong place at the wrong time when you're trying to do it. So we want to be firm without being harsh. And here's the problem, and here's what's tricky about being harsh, which we'll also communicate as, as being angry. 
When you express harshness or anger at your children, it works. That's why you do it. Because when you're the dad on the beach and you blow up, man, that kid melts. Does what you said. But the problem is, it works momentarily, but it has devastating consequences. It builds walls of resistance in children. It creates distance in your relationship with your children. It confuses the learning process. And instead of the kid thinking, I'm here taking a break or getting this consequence, whatever it is, because I did something wrong, they're thinking, I'm taking a break and experiencing this consequence because I made mom mad. So the way around this is just to not make her mad, not change. And it just instills in them this focus that their goal is to please people and not make them angry, not actually become who they need to become and do the right thing. So it's important to remember, in your, your anger is helpful for identifying the problem. It is not helpful for solving them. Our anger comes because there's a problem. Something needs to be addressed. It's good to identify it with anger. It is not good to solve it with anger. Harshness and anger sends the wrong message to our kids. A dad yells at his son, I've had it. I called you five times. You did not come. So I'm not taking you to the party. And so the kid is left there with a mixed signal. Am I missing the party? Is, is that my consequence because I did the wrong thing or because I made dad mad? Children who grow up with explosive parents, they, they learn to focus more on pleasing people than living with right convictions. Instead of asking, what is the right thing here for me to do? They ask, how can I maneuver through this situation without making anyone mad? Because if I can do that, then I succeed. So they avoid upsetting people and they're sneaky. That's what they learn. People pleasing, being sneaky. Kids then believe that what they did was okay as long as mom and dad did not find out because as long as no one gets angry, then it's not a problem. You see, the point is the inner strength of emotional control, which we would define as firmness, gentleness, not only guides children and builds them up in a positive direction, but it creates greater closeness in our relationships. So what we're saying is this, is that firmness can be an effective parenting strategy. So don't swing the pendulum so far where you say, okay, I'm not supposed to exasperate, provoke, irritate, so I'm, I'm going to disengage or I'm not going to do this at all. Don't allow that to happen. Firmness clarifies expectations. It is constructive confrontation that uses the power of words without anger to give further clarity. And so there's different ways you can be firm, especially with our children and our, our kids. Sometimes it might just mean when you're giving a direction, you move to closer proximity, showing that you actually are, you, you mean what you're saying right here. So you might say, Lee, I feel like you're not obeying me. I ask you to stop watching that video and come help me in the kitchen. You need to turn it off now. And you step closer. Creates a little bit of discomfort with the child that we're, it's firmness. We want it now. It's not optional. That can also happen when you give a direction and then you wait expectantly for them to start acting. You don't have to give the direction and just leave and just hope it happens. You can actually stay there and wait till action starts to your direction of what you said. 
We have to be careful in these moments that we don't just focus on what we want our child to stop doing. We want to also focus on what we want them to start doing. It's not just about changing their behavior. It's about a heart change. So if your daughter is mean to her brother, maybe what she needs to practice is kindness. If you have a child who lies, integrity is the goal. Speaking truth. We want to keep our eyes on the positive character that's needed to move forward, not just the negative we want to avoid. So firmness can be good in our parenting. But here's another truth that's really important when it comes to firmness, when it comes to gentleness, when it comes to training and disciplining as parents. Children can only take as much pressure as the relationship will allow. When we discipline or disciple without relationship, rebellion will often be the outcome. Dale is a father of two teenagers. And one of the ways he describes the tension he feels as a parent of teenagers, he says, you know, if I'm, if I'm opening up a jar at home, he goes, it's, it's simple. I'm, I'm either to loosen it, I'm turning to the left. Lefty Lucy, right? Lefty Lucy. If I'm tightening it, I turn to the right, righty-tighty. And I'm either tightening it or I'm loosening it. And it seems simple. But the difficulty that he's experiencing is when it comes to his parenting, does he loosen the reins a little bit and lean into relationships some more? Or does he tighten a little bit and rein in? Rein in, let loose navigating that for him, he finds incredibly tricky. He feels like he's it's either one or the other. Like it's, it feels like it's opposite directions at times, how it feels to him. So he said, sometimes I just feel like I get paralyzed into not wanting to make a mistake. And I just want to say today, don't get paralyzed into inactivity. The one who holds the jar is providing the relationship. And we have an opportunity right now not to get paralyzed, but instead to lean into both. Correction and discipline, while at the same time knowing relationship is needed. Discipline must take place in the context of relationship. And so, even in those moments when the pressure must increase, and we're providing some discipline and a training, and there's a little bit of a pressure increase in the home, at the same time, in that moment, we are looking for ways to also promote relationship. That can happen not just in, when we're correcting negative behavior, but even when we're just producing positive behavior. So there's, there's lots of ways or examples how that might be able to take place. And it's important. Otherwise, your family just comes across like military, not like family. It's not just about getting tasks done. It's about building relationships in the meantime. So maybe, maybe you walk in and, and Jamie's supposed to empty the trash. That's his job. And you, you're, I, I'm the dad. I walk in. I see the trash needs to be empty. Instead of, instead of that moment, just going, Jimmy! And hollering through the house, so Jimmy hears me and comes. Maybe I actually walk over to find Jimmy. And where is he? What's he doing? And when I find Jimmy, maybe he's sitting there having a meaningful conversation that moment, just in that brief moment with his sister. It can happen. So, like, maybe it's going on. In that moment, well, that's, that might be a special moment. I don't have to interrupt in that moment immediately. Maybe I can allow that to happen before I say, Hey, Jimmy, you should take out the trash. On another occasion, maybe dad's wanting to give Jimmy an instruction and he finds him at the computer. He, he's allowed some time to play his games and instead of just immediately walking in and finding him on the computer and giving a direction, what if he showed some interest in what he was doing? 
even though you have absolutely no interest in that video game that's being played in that moment. But hey, what are, you, what are you playing? What are you doing? How's it going? And show interest in that. It's the relational, personal touches that build relationship, which is important when you move as a parent from control to influence. Relationship is what allows for influence. And so we want to build relationship even as we are disciplining. That can happen even when we add a personal touch and we put a hand on our child's shoulder and we give hugs and we speak softly or all ways that we can show our child they are important to us. And then, of course, sometimes it is important that you just give a direction and it's followed. There's that too. But maintaining balance between firmness and relationship is essential for our good parenting. And look, maybe you find yourself on the erring side of this and you've had negative interactions with your kids as I have and you're disappointed in how you responded or overreacted in those moments. And you just need to know this. There is grace for that. It's it's like in 1 Peter, whenever we're told in 1 Peter 4, 8, you know, that love covers over a multitude of sins. And thank goodness for that. We We love each other deeply. And it covers over a multitude of sins. This isn't about us having it right or doing it perfect. But it's about us wanting to honor the Lord in our parenting. And if you find yourself on the erring side of this, or, or maybe you see negative symptoms developing, usually it's a sign. Are you tightening too much? Or are you loosening too much? If on the one hand, you feel like your kids are constantly arguing and complaining and defending and there's discussion going on, you've probably loosened too much. On the other hand, it, it might be the other side of that. You're constantly ordering those kids around. And because of that, there's other symptoms where they're withdrawing relationally. You see, relationship is the conduit. It's the conduit through which our values and convictions are passed from us to our kids. That's why relationship is so important, even in our training and discipling and disciplining. It's the conduit through which those values are passed. It's through relationship, just like as we saw today, where our children come to see the truth and grace of Jesus and know him for who he really is. Oftentimes we become that first picture of just who God is in the life of our children. That's why this is so important for us to engage and to do. And so in light of that, I I even want to just address the fathers for a moment. I mean, Paul does. He says, fathers, fathers, do not exasperate your children. And fathers, I just want to speak to you for a moment just about the importance, the vital importance of fathers in the lives of our children. You have an, an incredible impact in the life of your kids. A few years back, results were released of a massive study on church attendance about passing the faith to the next generation. Church attendance doesn't show everything, but it was just showing those kids who were involved or engaged in church later in life. And they were looking specifically at fathers, their engagement with church or their lack of engagement to see the outcome with these kids. And what they found was this, that if a father does not come to church at all, but the mother does, 2% of kids become regular adult worshipers. If the father comes some of the time and the mother comes regularly, that goes to 3% will join the faithful. But if both father and mother attend regularly, 33% of their children will be very regular churchgoers and another 41% will at least attend some of the time. They're engaged with church at some level, meaning that 
that 70% of our kids will likely engage with church as adults if the father is engaging with church as well. Now, I think that number, that strictly had to do with church attendance. I, I think that number goes up, actually, in homes where the father is engaged spiritually in, in the leading of his children. That's not foolproof. I mean, God's own children rebelled against him that he created. So it, it's not foolproof. I'm not saying that at all. But I think that number even goes up when we are spiritually engaged in our kids' life. It matters that our dads are involved. It's important. And that's, that doesn't just relate to faith that relates to, even to society. 85% of young men in prison were in homes where there was no dad. 70% of drug users in homes where dad was not engaged or involved. It, it, the, the social ills that we're experiencing in our own community are significantly because of fathers who disengage, which is the opposite, which is another issue. You know, we're like, I don't want to exasperate or provoke, so we, we leave. And whether they're not present in the home or they're not present mentally, relationally in their children's life, the outcome is the same. It has a negative effect on our children and on people. Fatherlessness, whether dads are literally gone or might as well be gone, is plaguing us. We need dads engaged, involved in our families. Otherwise, our children are just going to continue to drift further and further away from God. Why is that? Because we are created in the image of God. And when we neglect that, and we're not allowing him to recreate us in his image out of our sin and brokenness. We just transfer that brokenness onto the lives of everybody around us. And that includes our kids. And they don't get a picture of who God is. A father who lavishes his love on us. A father who pursues us. A father who cares for his children and says, so cast your cares on me. A father who says, do not worry about anything. A father knows what you need even before you ask. A father who gives good gifts to his children. A father who with open arms is ready to show compassion on us and to forgive us and to heal us. And a God who would pursue us when we leave him. A God who even though we rebel against him and sin against him and curse his name, he's a God with open arms who would receive us and love us back and say, let's throw a party and a celebration. For this son of mine was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. A, a father who knows what it means to show mercy and grace. This is our heavenly father. And God wants fathers who would show that love to people around them so they might know who God is. I guess the question for a lot of us could be this. Why should we parent like this? Why should we want to parent with gentleness and firmness, not in harshness and anger? Why would I not want to exasperate my kids? But why is it that I, I would want to train and discipline and disciple my children? Because you want to look like God, that's why. And the, the more you do it like that, the more you look like him. I want to look like Jesus. I want to look like my heavenly father. He is a good father. And when I have my mind set on things above, when I've been made alive in Jesus, I'm going to want in my relationships for those relationships to look in my interactions the way it would look if Jesus were here doing it himself. And that is our prayer, that we would become like him. We would parent like him. We would love like him. And that is our prayer today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that you are the perfect Father. Jesus, you said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, you are perfect. And Jesus, you came because we're not. But Jesus, you've made us holy. You've justified us, counted us holy. But you're also making us holy. So that we look more and more with ever-increasing glory like our Heavenly Father. And and so, Lord, we today, each and every one of us, want to submit our lives to you. So that in our interactions with others, whether it's with those in the family of God, our brothers and sisters, whether it's with those children in the family of God that you've entrusted to our care, to our teaching, our ministry, whether it's in our own homes, whether it's with biological family, nuclear family, whatever it is, God, we want to honor you. We want to look like you. We want to look like people who've been set apart. We want to look like people who have have their minds set on things above, not on earthly things. We want to look like people who've been made alive in Jesus. And Lord, I want to pray that you would convict us where we need convicted. And Lord, in those areas where we've fallen short and we feel guilty, Lord, bring comfort as well. Because you give us opportunity to admit our wrongs, to confess and to repent. And Lord, as your word says in 1 John, when we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, to cleanse us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for convicting us when we need it. But also thank you, Holy Spirit, for releasing us from shame and guilt when you've already forgiven us. Lord, I want to pray that God, from this day forward, we would just choose to love and honor people the way that you do. Lord, I want to pray that you would give us wisdom in the way that we parent our children. Lord, I thank you for every parent in this room or grandparent or or anyone who's acting in any role in that way. I know the impact they have on their children's lives. I know how difficult and hard it can be. Would you just fill them today with your mercy and your grace and your strength and your presence? Lord, lead and guide them as they commit themselves to your way. And Lord, may this household of faith be better for it. And Lord, we pray that we would be who you've called us to be today. We surrender to you and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Northside, if you just stand to your feet for a moment, there's some ways that we can respond right now. Our prayer team is coming down to the sides of the room and to the front, and they're here to pray with you today. And honestly, maybe today you're a parent who's sacrificed so much for your children, you've loved on them, and they're not following the Lord. They're making relationship difficult. Maybe you just want to pray, have someone pray over you and with you today. You're heartbroken today. You just want them to pray with you today. Maybe you want to pray for wisdom. Maybe you want to pray for greater resolve because you're just tired, fatigued. Maybe you want to pray with someone today because of a heart that's hurting. Maybe you've lost a father or a mother or a parent and you're just hurting today and you just want prayer. I just want to give you a chance for that. Maybe today you want to say, I need Jesus to change me. I don't want to be who... I've been. I want Jesus to change me. And 
I'd love to talk with you today about what that would look like for you. I'm going to be right over here at Decision Points at these double doors. I'd love to meet you there. If you're watching online right now, you can just go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision to begin that conversation. Or there's seat cards in front of you or behind the front seats. You can use those. But We just want to respond to what God would have us to do. And as we go into this week, let me just also close with this. Today can be a, a response where you just say, God, I am grateful for everything you've given me and I want to give to you. And so today, as part of your response to put God first, to give your best to him, to show that you are grateful for everything that he's given you, you can give today. You can give to the Lord as an act of worship today, expressing your thanksgiving to God. And There's boxes at the back of the rooms or you can just give with what you see on the screen. You can text to give to that number there. 417-223-1200 or you can give online at northsidechristianchurch.net I want to give you a chance to just respond with gratitude this week to what God has done for you so let's respond right now church as we sing thanks for joining us this morning Northside before you go make sure you check in and let us know you were here text the word check to 417-233-1200 if you want to respond to today's service you can do that online through decision point if you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision this is also the place to find out about our life groups find out what sort of service opportunities there are or if you just need to get in touch with a minister and if you're online you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.